Welcome to 1991 Movie Rewind, a podcast where we watch and review every movie released in 1991, from the all-time greatest classics to the critically panned and everything in between. We will rediscover forgotten fan favorites and uncover hidden gems as we explore the depths of direct-to-video. Join us in our celebration of the fun, unique, and diverse films of this highly underrated year. This week, we watched Cybernator. Cybernator takes place in the future year of 2010, where the world is in shambles and the cyborgs built by the military are starting to rebel against their creators. Senators are being assassinated, and local cop Brent McCord, played by Lonnie Schuyler, seems to be the only person who can properly fight back against these half-machines. Screenplay by Edward Sanchez and Robert Rundle, directed by Robert Rundle, and released on an unknown date in 1991. So I'm assuming you've never heard of Cybernator. No, I've never yeah. heard of this movie. Yeah, it's one of those VHSs that I picked up uh, when I cleared out a family video. Um, but that's my only experiences with the title. I know it was picked up by Troma later. I, I'm assuming later, because Troma doesn't appear on the, the records of the VHS anywhere. Uh, but no idea when it actually released. This is the very first time we don't even have a month given from any source that we could find just it's it appeared on store shelves one day for you Mm -hmm. to rent and no more information about when it's lost to time um and that's probably because there's virtually no production value in this entire thing this very much feels like a student film with a really high budget for a student film but a very low budget for an actual production meant for mass consumption. Yeah. (laughs) And the other movie we saw, Vegas in Space, that's Troma as well. Troma picked that one up later as well. Yeah. Yep. That was like, Vegas in Space was like more creative. Yeah. It was also a much different time since that was like a 10 year yeah, I know production it's like cycle a long time to make but this movie I was like what the hell is even going on like, I'll say just... it was easier to follow the plot of this one than it was brain twisters but that's right I mean it just wants to be say. like a T2 yeah it's like a stripped down Terminator type movie um I'm sure there's other inspirations in there too, but it's, it's, it seemed like the budget was probably so low that they basically just said, whatever take we get where the actors say the words in the proper order without fumbling over their lines fully, right? we'll, we'll just it. use it. There's so on. many times where people are talking to each other, but you don't see them in the same room talking to each other. You have like one camera looking at one guy saying a thing, staring off 
into what looks like a wall or something. And then there's the other person. You show the shot of that, and they're, like, looking at the person. And you're wondering, what is happening here? Yeah, the eyelines don't match at all. Especially, like, in that last scene. Yeah, I was beyond confused because I was like, who is he talking to? And can they see each other, too? Because you have Brent McCord looking all over the place, talking to the main villain of the movie. Yeah, I thought he was who talking to him. standing in open space. Right. And like, okay, Through well, I guess, wall yeah, I guess he's hidden behind a corner, but they aren't establishing that. But then, no, he just shoots the gun at him. They were like five feet away, it looked like. So he's like. just looking around in, into the void for the, no reason. Yeah, the way he's, he's talking is if he's to. talking through, like he's looking for him. Yeah. Like, I don't know where you are, so I'm just going to talk around this way yeah. and look around the room. But in re, like when they show the other guy, he's just standing in front of him. Yeah, just plain as day, just talking <laughs> as villains and heroes do. But saying his so plan weird. or whatever the hell. It, it, but, I mean, yeah, it's because most of those people are not in the the same room at the same time and they have to shoot their scenes separately, but they don't plan for the coverage. They don't plan for the eye lines. They don't plan for the spaces to look identical or even remotely the same. In one case, you have, like, a honestly, a straight-up just pure black background with a desk. And then the other side of the equation is, like, a, you know, a fully set, dressed place. Although that's that's limited too, because honestly, like most of the sets are just a couple of random walls that they put into like a soundstage or something, because you can often see the very top of the sets. Where there should be a ceiling, you see the top of the wall. <clears throat> so, not great in terms of framing either. The, uh, the cyborg makeup mechanisms... Um, for a low-budget thing, it's not bad. I guess. But I mean... <laughs> it does look really, really cheap. It's basically just spray-painted silver chunks. Right. And then they're, you know, glued onto the face. Or, you know, some adhesive to is used to put them on the face. To make them machine. Yeah. But really, it just looks like they have stuff strapped to their face. And yeah, in like a couple plastic. Cases, yeah, and in a couple of cases, it's legitimately just like a cut-up helmet that they are wearing. Right. It's just <laughs> that all the money went to whatever makeup they tried to do for these cyborgs. Yeah, because it definitely didn't go into like signage. I don't know if you noticed. Or just like sets, because they're hanging out in like someone's living room or something. Yeah, it, probably just some some random person's like who's someone's or uncle's actual house or something house. like that. Yeah, someone's actual house, or because it, yeah, it looks like, like grandma furniture, but it's you know this cop Brett McCord. Yeah, there's another. Or maybe it's the girlfriend's house blue. I don't oh, know. okay. It's just like. And then there's another scene that I remember where they're at an office. I have no idea. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> like, is that supposed to be, like, the detective's uh, place or, like, a police station? I'm not sure which scene you're talking about because it could it's, be... There's one where it's just literally a desk and, like, a chair. But again, I don't know which one you're talking about because that's three different seat. You know, that's, like, a, but, that's three different sets. That's what, <laughs> that are, well, that's that. what I'm trying to say is yeah. like there's like three sets and it's like one room with a desk and a chair. Yeah. This 
someone's random living room and then when they get to like the last part at the very end where they're like in this construction place i don't even know right then they try to make like some fake brick walls or fake uh, stone walls i mean and then they try to make like a fake like elevator thing um but i mean anytime they have to have like signs I don't know. When they're at the club, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, we got a club, but... When when they're at the club, which is probably just, honestly, just an empty... Like an actual club. Yeah, some some random place that just happens to have a stage that they're able to rent out. It doesn't look like an actual strip club, because, like, the chairs look like they're a hotel bar room. Or not bar room. What a ballroom. Um, But they, they shoot in this random stairwell... Uh, and there's guards on top of the stairwell protecting the senator, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, it's, it's uh, the partner, Weaver, is trying to go to the bathroom, I guess. And it's blocked by these guys. And you can see behind them, men's room, which is just a poorly, quickly written, like, black Sharpie piece of over paper a, taped to the wall over, that says men's room. Over the doorway? Yeah. Okay. It's like, there's no planning. Or or when they're in the, the major's office or whatever. You can just draw, You can see, like, like, the stenciled thing saying, nuclear site this way. Oh. <laughs> but for, like, the men's room, you just couldn't draw, you know, the stick figure man. <laughs> yeah, or if you're going to use stencils for the other thing, why not use stencils from another place? I'm sure you could probably buy... You can find stencils from, like, an arts and crafts... Yeah. Place. Or find a place that has legitimate bathroom and just shoot there instead of making your own yeah, sign. Yeah, where it just says bathroom. Instead, they just found a random stairwell that's probably not attached to anything, and they're like, okay, we can shoot a couple scenes here. Just running gun. It's it's super, super low budget. And uh, very, very fast production because everything is terrible in this. Like, the acting is god-awful. Uh, the death scenes, when anyone gets shot... It doesn't match up with the shots that are happening. So, like, the laser comes and destroys a guy, but the guy's already in process of dying before the laser hits right. him. Right. Like, he, and then they just, like, slump over and way. just, like, slowly lay down on the ground all nice and Yeah, kneeling. the guy is dying, but he hasn't even been shot at yet. Yeah. Like, he's in the process of going, Ugh, And he gets shot in the he... chest, but he covers his eyes. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, not good. It's funny i mean it, yeah it makes it funny though that that's the, the that's beginning the was funny and then it just i got bored and then it kind of got funny at the end again though yeah when when he the guy was talking through walls or whatever and who and the fight with captain hair yeah that was so like this captain hair guy is supposed to be some big baddie and that fight was like five minutes it's also weird because they're they're cyborgs yeah and they both have guns, and Captain Hare's like, no, drop your gun. I want to fight you, like... A real man, or yeah, whatever. Fist to fist. Which he does, but then, I don't know, I guess he forgot that he has his hair? Like, you know, his Samson thing? So, okay, Captain, <laughs> Captain Hare, which is the weirdest name, and it made us laugh like crazy. When well, because we it's thing. like, someone's toddler, like, someone just said yeah, to like their kid. Yeah, like a three-year-old kid, named character. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's it's it's just like, hey, what would you call this guy? And their little kid was like, Captain Hair. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> okay, for anyone who hasn't seen this and doesn't know what the description of the character looks like, he's basically spray painted blue or silver or whatever. Um, and instead of hair, he has a bunch of very thin 
tubes like going from his, his head, head to, to the like back his... of his neck and, and shoulders and yeah. stuff like that. So, <laughs> like just like, so he's kept in the hair. I mean, it makes me laugh thinking about it because it's so simple. <laughs> <laughs> but the way Captain Hare dies at the end What's is so... he's in this close quarters fight, and then McCord just takes his hair and pulls it pulls out of it his off, body. And he dies. And, and he dies. And Hare's like holding his own hair, watching the fluid squirt out. And he's, he's like, like, No! It's like, you dipshit. Like, you knew that was your weakness, I would hope. Because, hence the name Captain Hare. <laughs> right? Uh, so, you know. But, like, all along. But I guess he's dead, because they don't really show him. Like, they show him, like, slumped over, but they don't really, like, confirm Show him die. Dead. Yeah, yeah. But all along, Captain Hare is, like, the big baddie. Yeah. And he's, like, the biggest tough guy to beat. And all this detective had to do was, like, pull his hair. Could just pull his hair. But if he would have just kept the gun. Right. It if they were fine. shooting at each other, they would have had an actual fight. I don't Because they established that they do have guns that can kill cyborgs. McCord shoots and kills cyborgs in the middle in the in the beginning of the movie. And then he gets a more powerful gun from the major who's trying to blackmail slash help him. Um and so, you know, they could have just done that, but you know, honestly, the reason they did this is because the person who played Captain Hare has martial arts training and experience. He was a kickboxing champion in the army, so they wanted to use that, I guess. So okay, we're we're kind of like jumping to the end, but like the beginning of the whole thing is there's this racist thing, the typical thing of like cops don't like cyborgs. Right. You know, they're, they're calling them Borgies. And this whole thing is like cyborgs are supposed to be, I think, illegal. I think like the military is not supposed to have them, but they built them originally. And so now they're rebelling and all this kind of stuff. And like the, the cyborgs are trying to like prevent their own decommissioning. And I think that's why they're going after all these politicians or whatever. Um, so the introductory mm-hmm. scene isn't too terrible. I mean, you have a lot of like goofy over-the-top cartoonish acting from the first senator who gets killed who's like with a prostitute and trying to like have sex with her and she gets her neck cut but she but for some reason like he didn't see that happen and he thinks that her convulsing is like oh she's raring to go uh Uh, and then the reveal is that there's like two cyborgs who hold him down and cut him up um but th- yeah, you have like this partner Weaver with McCord. This poor guy. <laughs> yeah, this poor guy. He's in like I don't know a few scenes, but pretty much any time he's on camera, he's getting like he shot or shot at and beat until up. he actually dies. Yeah. Like, and then... like very early on, he's he just gets shot. And it's like okay, well the black guy's dead already. <laughs> but no. No, but he survived. That. I was like, oh yay! Like yeah. The black guy lived. Yeah, he's, he lived. But, but then, then, like, the next, next scene, t- next fight. He dies. And dead. that's when Detective McCord, like, the the way he reacts to Weaver's death oh is the way also he reacts laughable. To, yeah, the way he reacts to anything is laughable, though, because he is very much a face actor. Yeah, he's, like, yeah. squirming his he's face just and like, contorting everything. You. Like, the way he swears. Yeah. Like, he gets super offended for, like, 
I don't even know. It'll be like, hey, your girlfriend's hot or whatever. Fuck you. I don't yeah. know. Like the this face. Because his like, face scrunches up. It's, yeah, he has like a very smushy, squishy face, and like his eyebrows even go at the all end, over. Too. I don't know. Or <laughs> even like he's just fast forwarding to the end. Because the ending, I don't know. Like the the ending is kind of the best part in a way. I don't. It's like the beginning and the ending are the are the strong spots, and then the middle part where they actually try to like have make a, plot a plot is is not so great because there's a lot of there's a lot of dead space, not just in in terms of you know um, lack of action, but also there are literal scenes where you just watch McCord and a partner walk across the street to enter a building. And then you watch them exit the building and walk back across the street when they're done. Where there's no dialogue or mm-hmm. anything. It's just 30 seconds of watching people walk. <laughs> just to have, like, a really long established shot. Just to shot. have, like, content. I don't know. <laughs> to make yeah. this, like, a 90-minute movie. I have no Basically. Idea. That's what it seems like at times. So, anyway, there, there's the, the, the main action scene, I think, in the beginning is in the club where you have two more robots so i i don't remember who the robots were cyborgs sorry like their Uh, names (laughs) one of them was razor who never shows up again i don't think and then another one i don't know was that captain hare captain hare is the only one that i caught name of (laughs) but he he was in the beginning right he was in the opening scene like directing razor to do whatever there was like a woman who was like talking through her neck wasn't that like a woman? The, yeah, there was. Cyber. Well, there's a different. Yeah, there was a different one called Cyber Deep here. Throat, according to the credits. Oh, okay. And then there was another guy because she gets killed in the club, yeah, along yeah. with Ratchet Jaw, who is basically just wearing a metal thing on his jaw. It's, once again, this is just <laughs> literal, like a three-year-old, like the. It's like, did they have, like, machinations of action figures? Like, this movie's gonna be so big. Robert Rundle asked his child, what would you name these robots? And he decides to also pick up the the role of Ratchet Jaw. That is Robert Rundle. Okay. (laughs) Like, he asked his... um, This is me making fun of it, because this is not true stories. Unless it is true stories. I don't know much about his life, to be me honest. Me but he must have asked a child, what would you name me if I was a... Yeah. Like a robot. Maybe that's, you know, like a... Or they're using names that... It's like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle type names. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, are they gonna, like, try to make action figures out of these characters and that's why they want to have, like unique names or turn it into a cartoon later well there i know I mean, Toxic okay Avengers i know there's a, a cybernator video game is it that has nothing, nothing to do with it yeah okay because like when i was googling cybernator i kept on seeing the video game and i yeah. was like I'm, I'm pretty sure they're completely unrelated um all right so anyway yeah but the cyborgs don't look very strong in these early scenes, because, yeah, McCord's able to just take him out with the gun. And what's weird is, like, afterwards, the, the military's like, you were the only person who's been able to take out any of these guys. Like, he just shot at him with the normal police weapon. You know? Like, that's that's all. So I don't know what the deal is, and it seems like they're pretty vulnerable, because they are still mostly human. So, I mean, the, what you call, ratchet jaw... He gets shot in, like, the shoulder and dies. Or, or like, the heart or something and dies. Yeah. So, I 
what what Weaver's problem was is that he just went into the middle of the shooting field without any cover and immediately got shot. So, sorry, Weaver. You're a decent character. Honestly, probably the best actor of the bunch, too. Yeah. If I had to say. Uh, most of these people are known for either a bunch of B-movies or they've done Jack after this. Or, like, Jim Weaver was played by Jeff Jenkins. This is his only role. The police captain that they talked to, Jack Sr. played Captain Pfeiffer. This is his only role. So, you know, it's really just, like, whoever they could find to do all this stuff and then just put them on the screen and they're like, yeah, don't worry about delivery. It'll be cool because it's cyborgs. Um, but yeah, there's so many like just laughable moments and lines, but there is like one cool shot in this whole thing. Most of it looks like crap. <laughs> but, um, there's that one shot where McCord is like coming through some sort of alley or whatever and there's like a blue haze around him. Do you remember that a little bit at all? Uh, he's like walking in front of like this light with like a blue haze and you can see like the shadows kind of taking over the screen and then the Borgie captain hair drops down behind him and he shows up in red and like, I don't know, it's a nice little contrast and they actually try to put some thought into that one little shot, but the rest of it's, um, dumpster, just trash. Anyway, the big reveal is that McCord is also a cyborg. Right. Um, he thinks he's not. He has a very big disdain for cyborgs or borgies. Um, his girlfriend, Blue, who's one of the strippers, which I think they just had a scene in a strip club just to kind of like add the sex appeal to it, I guess. Yeah, but you don't need it. You don't need it. Um, I did like the first song. Do you remember uh, the first stripper who d never shows up again? Yeah, uh, that's why... Yeah, because it was like a rock song or whatever. Yeah. And what then the that song, song that she comes out to was like this weird jazzy song. Yeah, I think it was meant which, to be about her. Yeah, because they play it at the end. Yeah, it was not good. But the one about like schoolgirls don't run away or whatever it was. Right, it was good. just like some Lita Ford type of song yeah there's no soundtrack credits <laughs> yeah, there's, i couldn't not find... even in the movie itself to yeah say they what didn't the song even was. say who did what song because i was curious like i'm assuming that one song that blue sang to was made oh, yeah. for her for this been. movie by someone who i don't know robert rundle knew i have no idea yeah but blue is the main stripper girl her routine is very lackluster the club is nearly empty because the they first one find was a like of... awesome yeah it's probably like a legitimate stripper or something like that, that they yeah for a day and then um but it, not stripper i shouldn't say i mean it's a it's supposedly a strip club but it's more like burlesque because that's as far as that goes on stage uh blue yeah. and the court have a long sex scene later in the movie which that was so odd because it, they're yeah. in the middle of a an argument. <laughs> a big fight. <laughs> They're fighting. Yeah, it's like don't don't go after these people because you're gonna get killed. He's like, don't you understand? I gotta smush my face and be mad about things. Like you don't know what it means to feel or something. But like then that. they go into the bedroom, 
And then we have to watch this love scene. And then they go back to the argument. Yeah. The love scene is basically just close-ups of her boob. Yeah, it's like it's like almost nothing mix. but boob shot. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's almost as if it's like the opposite of what you would see as a censored for TV version, where they would focus like only on like the face or the thighs or something to specifically avoid the nudity. No, this is focusing only on the naughty bit and <laughs> nothing <laughs> else in the sex scene at all. Well, um, he's probably like, we need some sex appeal in this movie. So. Right. Uh, I mean, they need something because the actors are not carrying their weight. Uh, Blue, not... No. Like, no emotion. Like, does... No reaction. I will say, the other other, per the other, other person I thought was actually a decent actor was the, uh, the professor. Okay. Professor Mancini, who's, like, explaining what happened and, like, the major experiments or whatever, and he's... He doesn't need to exist, <laughs> but it's a way to get the writer in as a cameo, because that's Edward Sanchez, the co-writer. Um, so, I don't know. I thought he was okay at it. But most of it's crap, and it's just really laughably bad. Like, you know, Blue's like, okay, well, I'm going to go with you if you're going to get yourself killed. I'm going to come with you so I can be with you when you die, or some bullshit like that. Um, so she's the new partner, but she has no gun at all while they go, like, infiltrate the hide. She's also hideout. wearing, like, heels and, like, short shorts. Yeah. And, like, no... No camouflaging or anything. Well, yeah, she's not even guarding herself in any yeah, way. Yeah, no protective Yeah, equipment. no protection. But they're able to pick a lock in this weird random office building that has, like, a single filing cabinet and nothing else. And they're able to find, uh, all the proper information... And that's where McCord learns that he is also a cyborg. Um, but he's a different model where he has nothing on the outside, only inside stuff. So basically what the government had been doing is taking old inmates or uh, army people who have died in combat or from the death penalty and then turning them into this experiment to turn them like into super soldiers or whatever the hell. Uh, but he's, I guess, the best of the best. And at one point, like, the major... Major Wright uh, is basically saying like you have to go down take you have to take down Colonel Peck and you know all of his little cyborg whatevers and you have to do it because you are actually still in the military and you are still under orders so will you help us? like they had this big back and forth like well what if I don't want to do it? like what if I don't want to go kill Colonel Peck? he's like well you have to because you're in the army and you're still under orders <laughs> But then, like, the next scene is like, this is so can you help us, please? Huh? Can yeah. you please help us? I think this is the room where it's just the desk and the chair. No, I think this is happening in Grandma's house. Oh, in the... Okay. <laughs> okay. Because they're saying, like, we captured Blue. If you want to see her again, uh, you have to do this for us because we're holding her hostage. It's like a blackmail situation. All right. Um, <laughs> but, like, it's so stupid because they have these fights in the main head hideout and then they cut back to the professor and the major just hanging out on the couch like looking at their watch mm -hmm. like boy i hope he's almost done with this i don't know it's just really silly and the thing is like i don't think most of it's intended to be funny in that way i think it's meant to be like a serious action movie but it just comes off as such a cheesy laughable mess 
And that's the kind of thing like I, I kind of love about B-movies. This is like what I was looking for when I was searching family video for different VHSs, is this kind of like laughably bad adventure. Yeah, but it wasn't. Parts of it were, though. Like the beginning and the end. Yeah. That's parts. <laughs> that's two parts. <laughs> and, and, yeah, I mean, I'm like... not saying it's the best we've seen. Yeah. It's not the best we've seen in, in that regard. Uh, but it has its moments. Um, I don't know. There's The plot is nothing. There's not much to really say. I took a ton of notes, but most of it's just like about the dumb stuff. Like obviously the lines are recorded separately. Obviously like the the signs are handwritten. Obviously like it's weird that you can just snap the neck of a cyborg and he dies as he goes into the base. There's like that Indiana Jones ripoff scene where there's a samurai cyborg who comes and like swings his swords and then McCord just shoots just him shoots with the gun. Him and then that's it. He dies. Yeah. yeah. But it's like if you knew you can snap a neck of a cyborg, won't you just be snapping necks? No, you got pulled a hair at least. <laughs> but yeah, it's... that's why I was like, what? Don't you like? I don't, if it's like T two, don't you have to like dismantle it or somehow like take a chip out or something? But like snapping a neck because they don't necessarily have necks. Yeah, it's it's weird that he knew that that would work, but this is just Unless a big, you're like big guy painted silver. them somehow. Yeah, I mean they should have done something like that, like had a little thing on the back of his neck that he could just pop, like, pop out, out or... and just show it. Be like, okay, he's done. But they don't. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then it's basically over. Like, so the the way that Colonel Peck dies is uh, he is. They finally share a room, they share a scene together, and Colonel Peck is speared into a vat of nuclear waste. Yep, okay, so he's supposed to, it's like, detect, uh, Captain Hare is like the bad guy before the big bad guy. Yeah, and he's then, really just brains, not muscle. Colonel Peck is. Right, so when he gets to him, it's just, they have that weird interaction where... They're talking, like, as if to Brent, whatever, Brent McCord is talking through walls, but, you know, the captain is literally in front of him. And when they fight, the fight is, like, one minute long. And then mm -hmm. he dies immediately by putting him on that thing that sort of electrocutes him. Oh, yeah, the, the special effects are just god-awful. There's terrible superimposition of just electrical voltage that's just yeah. pasted on top of yeah, the image. Yeah, on top. It's kind of like, what was that? On Pop popcorn. Yeah, but popcorn did it better. Yeah. Like, it's just, so the actor is probably just convulsing and then they put, like, electricity on top of him. To look, and then they make that noise, that noise. Right. Like, he's being electrocuted and then... Brent records stabs him and then that's it. Yeah, he's stabbed in the nuclear waste and so like the, the goop is falling on him yeah. and everything too. Um, and then he rescues Blue sort of off screen because the next scene you see the the, uh, the major with the professor 
and tear gas was thrown into the house and they run in and they see the words fuck you were written on the mirror <laughs> and then you see a shot of uh, them kissing and driving off into the sunset yeah and they play that whatever. song again sunset, her, her song that she stripped to yeah so and then there was no previews well what we yeah, there's no we, previews we watched this on VHS well, we have it well, on VHS. Well, we have it on VHS. We actually watched it on Tubi because we wanted to have the subtitles just in case. Which was good because the volume was like up and down. All over the place. Yeah, the audio mixing is terrible in this too. So we we popped in the VHS just to see if there were any previews and there weren't. Which is mm-hmm. weird for a small production thing like this. You'd think you'd want to advertise other productions. Uh, you know, if if someone's renting Cybernator, they probably want to see more stuff like Cybernator. So if you have that, advertise it. But right. they didn't. Um, so yeah, Tubi was helpful because of the bad everything. <laughs> it helped. Uh, okay, so in terms of awards, box office, obviously none, nothing to speak of at all. Cast and crew, really quickly, we can talk about. Robert Rundle, who is the director, writer, and Ratchet Jaw. This is his debut feature, but he did do additional ones. He did Divine Enforcer, Run Like Hell. He also wrote the movie Raw Energy. And he's also married to Linnea Quigley, who does not appear in this movie, but we saw in Virgin High. I don't know when they got married, so I don't know if they even had met at this point to, uh, you know, have her make a cameo. But Edward Sanchez, like we talked about, writer and also credited as Professor Mancini. He also did the movie Manosaurus, which I've never heard of, but sounds equally fun and terrible. Uh, Lonnie Shiler as Brent McCord. He's been in actual legitimate stuff. Uh, Honeymoon in Vegas, The Double O Kid, the TV series Models Inc. He did several episodes of Melrose Place, uh, and he has also done some writing and directing himself. Uh, Beneath the Mississippi and Splatter, Love, Honor, and Paintball. Uh, Christina Lucia Peralta Ramos played Blue. She's been in things like Princess Warrior, Marked for Murder, and Other People's Secrets. Colonel Peck is probably the most well-known name on the marquee. That's William Smith. Uh, He is a child actor from the 40s. He also did a lot of work in the 70s, including writing and starring in the movie Hollywood Man in 1976. He's been in TV series like Laredo. Uh, He was in Rich Man, Poor Man, Book 2. Movies like Any Which Way You Can and Red Dawn. In 1991, he's also in a few different things like Spirit of the Eagle, The Rollerblade 7, The Last Riders, Hard Time Romance, and also one episode of Young Riders. And one episode of the 1991 show called Shades of L.A., which I don't know if we've talked about yet. No. So, uh, Jimmy Williams played Major Wright. He's also the cinematographer of this movie. Um, he's, again, in, involved in the uh, the B-movie world. He's in 1991's Samurai Cop. Uh, and he's done things like Terminal Force, Misfit Patrol, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, and so on and so forth. And then Captain Hare, we talked about his martial arts training. He's also in 1991's Karate Cop. And he's been in things like Lionheart, Desert Kickboxer, Push to the Limit, and Prison Planet. Uh, I will say, like, in terms of the music, it was interesting to a degree. It was cheesy. Um, and that was done by Keith Bilderbeck, who was an Emmy winner for sound editing for Star Trek The Next Generation. And also nominated for that same thing for MacGyver. This was his first composing gig, uh, which he hasn't done a whole lot of. He's done things 
like Crystal Force, The Killing Jar, Sweet Evil, and 13 episodes of a TV show called Dino Babies. So <laughs> that's how we'll end off the casting crew side of things. So we'll move on to true crime and pop culture. Okay, since we do not have a release date for this movie, I decided to talk about something that I've been sitting on for since we thought about this podcast. The anniversary date is coming up, and I'm just going to be talking about the capture and arrest of Jeffrey Dahmer. He was captured on July 22nd, 1991, and this episode will be released around then. So I figured why not, because I don't know when I ever will talk about this. Yeah, I think we've we've had a movie that was close to that date, and then we even looked up the dates, and there weren't really hardly yeah, any the, actual movies on that specific day. Right, I was waiting for a week or a day for a movie that was released in July, but since this episode is coming in July, why not? Yeah, got nothing else and, specific um, to talk about. Also, just when thinking of 1991... This was one of the first things that came to my mind, like uh, pop culture and news-wise. I don't know how you found out about Dahmer, but... I mean, I probably just heard like little snippets about it in the news. I remember, I mean, I didn't watch the news a whole lot myself, but I mean, it was such a massive story that it just kind of permeated things over time and then like late night show hosts would joke about it especially like the eating of the victims yeah thing became a punchline that carried over into like the schoolyard too so um i don't remember exactly how and why but i just kind of filtered through the zeitgeist right it's just growing up well plus this is like a to me like a local murder this was mostly in milwaukee but he did come down to Chicago for gay pride. And okay. he he went to some bars around here because I did go to a bar that he would frequent. It's called the L&L Tavern. It's on Belmont and Clark. It's still there. He used to go there and then Gacy used to go there. So Gacy... They didn't overlap because Gacy was doing his cruising, I guess, during the 70s. And then Dahmer wasn't in Milwaukee until the 80s. And, you know, Gacy wasn't captured until 1980. And then these two serial killers, I just knew about them because they were here in Chicago and I grew up in Chicago. And it was weird because it was told to me that they would come after children. That's how you start. And then the whole fear mongering and like, you know, the satanic pants to like, you know, it was the whole stranger danger thing. And then when I was a kid, we were told about a killer clown that was like on the loose. But this was like in the 90s. When I, I mean, when I was older, I was like, oh, that was Gacy. And Gacy was already like captured and in jail. Right. But 
you know, they gotta just, like yeah, the fear example. monger yeah. children to be like, just watch out yeah. and don't yeah, don't trust anybody, trust anyone. Yep. And then it was also the time where it was like, you shouldn't be hitchhiking, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't pick up any hitchhikers because everyone's a serial killer, basically. Yeah. So I mean, this is around that time. So that's how I kind of knew about Dahmer and but I didn't know his name I just knew about that he was like killing and eating people and then I knew about the killer clown and then that's what like the fear came into me about going outside is being told by like parents and older people like you shouldn't be out after a certain time and stuff like that when Jeffrey Dahmer died, I think I was like in high school by then. It was in 1994. So I was like eighth grade or in high school. And that's when all the jokes came about because of the way he died. And I remember people were like, oh, well, he deserved it. So I don't give a shit. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember how he died at all. Okay, well, maybe you'll get to uh, it. Yeah, I just remember that he did, and yeah, basically things like, oh, well, good riddance. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, and then I might get canceled, or... This is, like, the first serial killer where I find it... I kind of feel bad for. Okay. And it's mainly because of, like, his upbringing, and he just felt like a lonely, misunderstood man. Until he became an actual monster. Yeah, it's it's like a cause versus effect type of thing. But I understand what you're talking about because you know we've we've seen things like My Friend Dahmer, which is a fictionalized movie. Well, that and, and, was based off of a friend of his in high school. From his friend made a like comic, a comic book or like a yeah a graphic novel. Called but, my friend Dahmer, but they weren't exactly friends because from just reading and hearing about him and looking stuff up, he was just kind of like a loner. Everyone thought he was the weird kid. Right. It, that's that's sort of what I was getting at. Is like just from like seeing that or you know watching other things about him, it just seems like yeah, his his initial upbringing was extremely rough, and he had probably a um, things working against him before any of that happened right like he just just naturally had some quirks about him and then the home life just sort of exasper exacerbated a lot of those right. things so i understand where you're coming from 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 that side of things but yeah it's really like a cause versus effect type of a scenario i think i just felt and... bad how his upbringing became because he could have gotten help, but I know this is like in the 70s and 80s where, you know, taking someone to like a psychologist or a psychiatrist was like seen as bad or seen as you're crazy. And then if you're crazy, then that's bad. Yeah. Or even just being a homosexual at that time was considered Exactly. Be... Yeah. And he's also like, he tried to, I mean, he became a drunk because I think he tried to like subdue all of these urges right. with drinking yeah. even though he started drinking when he was in high school because of I think his parents and 
his upbringing. But yeah, on the other side of the coin, though, I think it's important to say that, like, what he there did are plenty was of horrible. people who come from broken families and other situations like this who don't go on to be serial killers. So exactly. there's obviously, like, some mix of variables that happened with him. So, yes, the home life is and stuff is, is really terrible and tragic. But that's what not he necessarily did, what caused him to be that way. Right, also exactly. What else. he did is... It, absolutely horrible yeah, and, and un- unforgivable exactly but yes he did have a tragic upbringing okay so th- i'm just gonna start off with trigger warning content warning okay sexual assault necrophilia cannibalism oh, that's it but I'm, j- I'm also going to talk about his 1991 murders up until his arrest and then maybe the trial and then what happened to him because everything before that is just a lot. But in 1991 is when I think he just started on his rampage. It, it became more of like this ritual for him where... Um, from watching all these documentaries and reading things, he was starting to create like a mantle or a shrine that he wanted to make for himself. And that's why he had the collection of all the bodies. And it became in 1991 that he was like luring gay men to his place it was like a weekly thing instead of well his first murder was when he was right in high school he was a senior and it was his first two murders are kind of accidental and it's mostly growing up he was just fascinated with bones and dead bodies but more of like animals and his dad was like all his dad was a chemist so his dad was like oh you're into the sciences let me give you like chemistry sets and whatever the hell like Mm -hmm. he's he's like let's embrace this Uh so he had like it in he grew up in Ohio so like they had like some shed in the back so he was making like some taxidermy and whatever that It was not until his, he was like left alone for most of his senior year and that was when his father just like up and left his wife for another woman and then his mother was like, okay, well if you're leaving, I'm leaving and then she just leaves Jeff all alone even though he's like 17, 18, but she's like, you're a man now, you can just stay here. Mm And that's when he starts to get into these fantasies where, I mean, in high school he is following, he lived in a very rural part, so he would always see this jogger that he was obsessed with, and he was just really obsessed with men, like athletic men, and their torsos because of that jogger that he saw. So that was... That just becomes a whole thing up until 1991. So he, yeah, I don't even want to, so yeah, he accidentally kills his first two people. Like he, even 
from reading stuff, he didn't necessarily want to kill any of these people, but he was like so... He got turned on sexually by the insides of people. He wanted to know like what the organs look like. Right. That's what really turned him on. Yeah, it wasn't... The beauty of the inside. Yeah, so... But they have to be dead to get to that. Right. But he... And then he started to experiment, and that's when he would, quote, turn them into zombies. That's when he started to drilling into their skulls and, like, putting battery acid and stuff to make them, like, in a coma. Okay. For a while, but that became obviously horrible. And then one of the murders, the young boy, it's a young Laotian boy, was escaping from his apartment. It was right after he did the lobotomy of drilling his head and putting battery acid in. And he, the way he would lure in all these guys was just like, hey, come over to my place and we'll get some drinks. And he learned so much about, like, chemistry and, like, drugs and whatever from his past, like, from his father. And then he, when he was in the army for a couple of years, he was a medic, so that's how he learned all these things. So he would lure in these men and drug them, and then while they were passed out, that's when he would sexually assault him. That's how it assaulted them. That's how it started. But then it became more of like this obsession and ritual where he wanted to, he wanted them to be a part of him and him to be a part of them. And there is like this thing where he just, he was such a lonely guy that he just didn't want any of them to leave. Mm-hmm. That's how the first two he accidentally killed his first two guys is because they would have like consensual sex but then they were like alright I gotta go and he's like no you can't leave me mm-hmm. and that's when he would like beat them over the head and then he felt bad because they died but then he got turned on from these dead men so it was just like this, these demons inside of him. So that's why he came up with this drilling in the head thing. He's like, if I can just turn them into zombies and do whatever I can do with them, with their bodies, and then they can wake up and be okay, I think that's what he was trying to do, but it didn't happen because, I mean, he's putting acid in their brains. Right. You can't, like, come out from that. He, so in total, he killed 17 people, and in 1991, he killed eight. And they were just, from May to July, it was like every week. On May 27th, 1991, and that was, it was a 14-year-old Laotian boy. His name is Conorak. Syntha Symphony. He, he was 14, but... According to Dahmer, he said he didn't know that he was 14. He said that he looked like he was 18. Uh-huh. But another thing is that Dahmer was very much attracted to hairless men. So obviously it's going to be like 
young men. I mean, he himself was, he was like, at this point, he was like 30. But a lot of his victims were between like 18 and 25. The oldest was the same age as him, the 31-year-old. And it just so happened that this Laotian boy was 14, but he didn't even know that until he was captured and told that he was a 14-year-old. But on May 27, 1991, that's when he drilled into Conorak's head, put battery acid in, and then he forgot that he had any beers, so he went out to get some beers, but this is when Conorak is seen naked walking through the streets, and that's when his neighbors would call the cops. And this is during the time Dahmer moved into these apartments in Milwaukee, where it was a predominantly black neighborhood. And from reading everything, like Milwaukee was a very segregated town. Sure. So he was like the only white guy in that neighborhood and in the apartment building that he lived in. But the reason why he lived there was because the rent was cheap. And his neighbor, his neighbors were, I mean, he moved in there in 1990. So for like a year and a half, but it wasn't until the latter year that everyone was in the building was constantly complaining about the smells coming from his apartment. And they would, the neighbors would constantly call the cops and they were like, yeah, whatever. I mean, they would come to his house and he was also known to be like a charming man, which is another yeah, common yeah, trait, trait yeah. for serial killers. Like you, Ted Bundy was known to be like a charming guy. Yeah, and, same with uh, Gacy, right? Just, yeah. He's like a well-known, like they can switch, businessman. They can switch it on for yeah. the authorities. So, and this is also just like, you know, around the time, you know, the, the cops are very racist, homophobic. So when they get to Dahmer's apartment and they confront him about this naked guy in the streets. Dahmer's like, oh yeah, this is my boyfriend. He's just really drunk. And, you know, he he would always be like, yeah, we're doing gay things. Because if you mention the word gay to like a cop during this time, they're like, oh, well, I don't want to bother you. So be on your way. Yeah, type which, of thing. which sounds strange, but like in 1991, this is like full blown AIDS awareness right. time, and a lot of people had the massive misconception that if you just touch people or you're around them, if you're breathing the same air, that you could possibly catch it. Right. And so that's a big part of the fear. I think if it was even five years later, the punishment would possibly be coming a lot quicker and more severe because the, the pendulum would swing the other way. And they would overreact and be like, okay, well, I'm going to take in this pervert. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
But and at that time, it was like, no, I fear for my own safety. I don't want to be around them if I don't have to. So exactly, because, I mean, the, he lived in a bad neighborhood, and it was the black side of town where, you know, I think whenever these cops would get calls from, like, they didn't even want to show up, or they didn't show up at all, because, like, that was the bad part of town. That's why, like, yeah, that's why the Public Enemy song exists, right? The 911 right. is a joke. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, he just, and they were like, yeah, but then they do go to his apartment. They're like, well, do you mind us looking around your apartment? And they just kind of look around and see, you know, there's like a rattles, whatever. And, and then they do mention the smell, but they don't question it. And then meanwhile, his neighbors, there's like five other black neighbors of him complaining about the smell and about this boy who's naked stumbling across the streets and whatnot they're like well there's five of us you don't believe us but you'll believe this white man here mm-hmm. and they kind of the cops just um they're like okay well we don't see anything bad so we'll be on our way but once the cops left that's when jeffrey got you know scared and he ended up just killing conrack and cutting up his body and that's when he started storing them in just various parts of his apartment where he got the big vat the big tub because he was killing people so much that he didn't even know where to put the bodies. He had them in the fridge and then he had a freezer. He would always say that he had like spoiled meat whenever people would complain. Mm -hmm. And then he also had, he would keep the bodies in his tub and he would be taking showers like with dead bodies in his tub. And that's when he decided to get that barrel and fill it up with chemicals to right. like disintegrate their bone not disintegrate like their muscle so it can become just bone five other people just doing the same thing and it wasn't until I th- this was also in may of 1991 where he would lure men in and he mostly picked them up at gay bars around town and he would tell men like, Hey, I can give you like 50 to a hundred dollars and take some photos of you if you just come into my place. And he met up with a up and coming wannabe model. And this is when they do have sex together but then the guy was like okay well I'm gonna get up and go and leave and that's when you know Dahmer is like you can't leave me and that's when he starts to attack and hit them over the head he said that this is like I was reading interviews and then listening to interviews that he was trying to he didn't like killing people but he Like, he just said this was, like, a ways to a means for what he wanted, his outcome for this altar he wanted to make. It was just, like, a fight-or-flight 
type of situation. It was just like I he wanted to come up with a quick way to kill these people. Mm. So that's what, and he also said he wasn't really into like slashing necks or anything. Like he never stabbed. He always would strangle them, and then when they would die, that's when he would start his filleting open of like their chest and then taking out the organs and this is when it got into cannibalism because with this one guy he sort of had like a relationship with it's he didn't want him to leave so he cooked and ate up his heart the reason was he wanted these victims to be a part of him and always to be with him. It wasn't until July 22nd, 1991, where he was going in to get another victim to just pick up at a bar. And he approached, it wasn't, it was different this time. He would sometimes, in the beginning, when he first got to Wisconsin. He was going to bathhouses, and that's where he got kicked out of. Like during the eighties, like he after he got back from, he got kicked out of the army because he was a drunk. He was just constantly drinking and then getting kicked out or fired. Until his father was like, "You're gonna go live with your grandmother in Wisconsin," but then. That's when his obsession of wanting to kill became more. And he couldn't do it in his grandmother's house because she started to suspect things. So that's when she even had to call his father again to be like, I want him out. And that's when he got this job at the candy factory where he was getting paid really well. And it was overnights, so... He would work like Monday through Thursday overnights, but then he would have like Fridays and Saturdays off, and that's like prime time to go out to bars and drink and whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was getting paid pretty well according to like 1991 times. So on July 22nd, he approached three men and offered them $100 to accompany him to his apartment to pose for nude photos and just drink beer and keep him company. And one of the men, who is, who at the time was a 32-year-old, Tracy Edwards, agreed to come to his apartment. And then upon entering his apartment, Edwards noticed like the foul odor and then... There was, like, boxes of hydrochloric acid on the floor. Dahmer knew that what he was doing was wrong. And I think he was starting to get sloppy so he can be caught. I don't know. Like, you think he possibly wanted to be caught at that point? I think. Because when they do catch him, he he does say, for what I've done, I should be dead. So Tracy Edwards saw the hydrochloric acid on the floor and then Dahmer would always have an excuse for everything. He'd be like, the, for the smell, it would be like 
oh, the meat I have is rotten, or I use this hydrochloric acid because I clean bricks. Like, uh, and then people would always believe them. Uh, Edwards was there for up to four hours. And then another thing is that like Jeffrey Dahmer was obsessed with The Exorcist, so he would make them watch like Exorcist 3 was one of them. And it was, he said that he wanted to have like mind control over people, kind of like in Star Wars. He wanted to have that type of control. And like just for like sexually, like because another thing that he liked was that he didn't when he did have sex with men he didn't want them moving like he just wanted to do what he wanted to do on like a, a laying body that's why he made them into like zombies or he'd rather just have sex with a corpse mm. because they weren't moving he just wanted to do whatever he wanted to do for his own sexual pleasure but Dahmer invited Edwards into his room to watch The Exorcist 3 and that's when Edwards saw the gallon in the corner of his room where there was like a strong odor coming from it and then that's when Edwards tried to kind of charm Jeffrey because he said while Jeffrey was watching The Exorcist, he was kind of like mumbling to himself and like rocking back and forth. So he was trying, Edwards was trying to distract him and, you know, be nice, like, hey, why don't I do this for you or whatever, just to get out of it. Or he's like, hey, I need to use the bathroom. And there was a point where Jeffrey put handcuffs on him because he would usually like handcuff his victims so they wouldn't leave. But he kind of unsuccessfully handcuffs him. And it was also noted that Jeffrey didn't have any more of his pills because he would crush up pills and then give them to his victims so they can pass out. But that night he didn't even have any pills left. So he was hoping to just have Edwards drink a lot so he can pass out. Mm. But Jeffrey, when Jeffrey was being interviewed about this he he noted that this guy was never getting tipsy or anything so it was like hard to get him to pass out but so anyways uh edwards was able to escape and then he's running around the streets of milwaukee looking for cops and he came across to beat cops and first, you know, they see a black man with handcuffs on. They're like, hey, like, at first they were like, hey, what are you doing? Like, kind of berating him. Like, what are you right. doing out here with handcuffs, like, half on your arm? And he's and he only went up to the cops to be like, hey, can you just unlock these? Because I just don't want them on me anymore. And Edwards wasn't going to say anything. But, like, all he wanted was to get the fuck away. <laughs> I don't know. And, but the cops were asking him, like, where'd you come from? How'd you get these handcuffs? That's when Edwards was like, there's this creepy guy that lives over here. He put these handcuffs on me and 
he has the key, but, you know, I ran away because he creeped me out. And that's when they take him back to the to Jeffrey's apartment and they knock on his door because they basically just wanted to get the key. And Edwards was like, I'm not going in there. Like, you, you two guys go in there, the police officers. They go into... Jeff's apartment and you know they do notice the foul smell but then you know Jeff is saying oh yeah that's like spoiled meat whatever and they the two cops ask you know can we search around and look for this key and Jeff's like okay and that's when they found all of the photos that Jeff took of all of his victims when they were alive and also dead and then when the two cops realized that these Polaroids were of of dead men in his apartment, that's when they searched further and then they open his refrigerator and that's when they see like human skulls and they immediately arrest and take him down. And that's when Jeffrey says, for what I did, I should be dead. But immediately when they take him in, he confesses to every murder that he's done from 1978 until then. Like, he's very compliant. He's just like, let me tell you everything. Mm -hmm. And, like, he doesn't resist or anything. He's just kind of like, kind of like, I don't know. He's like, okay, you finally got me. Yeah. Like, almost relieved that it's over in a way, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, like, he doesn't have to do this anymore. And he also said when he was being interviewed by the detectives that he was like, can you just give me the electric chair so this can be over with? Like, he just wanted to die. Mm -hmm. So in the, he was, so he confessed to everything. This began on July 23rd all the way until he was indicted on July 25th, 1991. And that's where he was charged with four counts of first degree murder. And then by August of 1991, he had been charged with 11 murders committed in Wisconsin. And then by September 14th, he was convicted of the murder that happened when he was in high school in Ohio. Because when he confessed to all this, he said, yeah, when in 1978, I killed someone and I bashed the head over a hitchhiker and ended up like boiling his bones and then crushing the bones and scattering them all around the backyard of his dad's house. So he confessed to that. And then by September of 1991, they confirmed that, yes, what he confessed about is true so now we're gonna charge him with this murder he was not charged with the attempted murder of edwards though and not he was also not charged with the murder of the second man that he quote-unquote murdered because according to him he said that was an accident because he blacked out and he woke up in a hotel room and realized the man next to him was dead so they didn't charge him with that murder okay 
they were, yeah. At that point, I mean, how much more do you need? Yeah, I don't know. So, trial began on January 30th, 1992. He was tried in Milwaukee for 15 counts of first-degree murder. And he pled guilty, but insane. They had a lot of... So, during that time, they had so many experts go on the stand, the defense. And he was confirmed to have borderline personality disorder, schizotypical personality disorder, and psychotic disorder. So they, that was their defense, which is saying that he was psychotic. And for the plaintiffs on the state side, they were saying, no, they don't think he was insane because he knew what he was doing and he knew it was wrong, so he was sane. Sure. So the the trial lasted two weeks. The jury chose to believe that the prosecution's assertion that Dahmer was fully aware that his acts were evil and chose to commit him them anyway. On February 15th of 1992, for about 10 hours, the jury deliberated and found him guilty but sane on all counts. He was sentenced to 15 consecutive life terms in prison with a 16th term tacked on in May, and that was for the Ohio incident. And once he was in prison, he was put on suicide watch. He was also in solitary for a long time because of the other inmates realizing who he is. And it would have been dangerous to put him out in, like, gen pop. Mm -hmm. And his defense attorneys even said that he himself said that no I'm fine you can put me in gym pop they were like no we're we're concerned about your safety so we're gonna put you in solitary confinement for like a year or so and at this time he started to become more of like a born again Christian I mean he was raised Christian but you know never really did anything religious so he became baptized and it was also it was in may of 1994 and that was also the the day that he was baptized was the day that john wayne gacy was killed okay so it was like a weird coincidence yeah and so after that he was after he was baptized and became more into being a catholic or a christian they decided to put him into the gen pop he was at the columbia correctional institute this was also in wisconsin and he was attacked once while he was like in the gym in the gym pop like a couple of guys came up to him and like slashed him or did some or hit him in the face but he didn't retaliate at all he just allowed it to happen i think he wanted to die Uh and um allowed that to happen but then he was quickly taken into like the infirmary and he was bandaged up 
and then went back to gem pop. But it wasn't until November 28th, 1994, where he was on cleaning duty with another inmate, and that is when the other inmate beat him to death. They found Jeffrey and they tried to resuscitate him, but I mean, he died there after being beaten to death. After he died, the house or his apartment building was, everyone in the apartment building was, had to be evicted because it was considered like a crime scene, but also like a hazard hazardous materials were everywhere so they like condemned that building Mm. and in 1996 a Milwaukee businessman raised money $400,000 to purchase all the items that he used for his crimes like the blades, saws, handcuffs the refrigerator and then he and the money that he raised went to the victims of Jeffrey Dahmer so on that somber note, why don't we go to uh, rankings and ratings, sort of <laughs> tie it back up into the movie. Into the movie, yeah. I mean, I'm gonna give Cybernator a one. One on your one to five star. That makes sense. It's it's a. Uh, I had fun watching it. It's not a good movie. Mm-hmm. I've had more fun watching, also terrible movies. Um, yeah, on my zero to four star star scale, it's a half star uh, okay. mostly because of absolute terrible production value terrible acting terrible special effects um, but it is a fun watch it's not like I don't know it's it's not like brain twisters where we're just like scratching our temples and like when is this done because yeah weird. I was just bored mostly <laughs> but brain it, it twisters was... had better production value and acting so it's right. like a trade-off that you get sometimes uh, every movie's worth watching once would you watch this again no. Nah, yeah, like I said, it has some moments, but not enough moments to make it, like, something I would show other people and be like, oh, you gotta see this one. Uh, but maybe we'll find others like that at some point. If you out there want to watch Cybernator, as of this recording in July 2023, it's available on Tubi, Plex, VHS, or DVD. As always, check your local listings. As for us, you can listen to us on all of your major podcasting platforms. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. You can email us at 1991movierewind at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, YouTube. Just search 1991 Movie Rewind or go to 1991movierewind.com for the full list of movies along with show notes and more. Next week, we're getting away from the schlock. We're going to Grand Canyon. That's on Stars, VHS, or DVD. We'll see you then. Thanks.